0: You're with Clement Maniatella.
1: 702.
0: But right now, we start a conversation with Anthony Philipson, who is the British High Commissioner to South Africa. As I've said to you in the previous hour in the coming weeks, I will be hosting a number of ambassadors, High Commissioners to South Africa. Um, and today we're starting with the UK, because we enjoy a good diplomatic relations with the UK. We're an important regional and international player for them, but also the UK is one of the country's most important trade and investment partners. And I want you to just understand what the responsibilities of ambassadors and high commissioners are when they are in this country. I want you to understand more about our diplomatic relations. I want you to understand more about how we often even manage things that we may not see eye to eye on, because that's part of being sovereign countries and having those diplomatic relations is understanding and respecting positions that other countries take. I'll give you an opportunity to also weigh in on this conversation, or if you've got some questions, uh, you can give us a call on zero one one eight eight three zero seven zero two, or send a WhatsApp on zero seven two seven zero two one seven zero two. Hi, Commissioner. Thank you so much for coming through to studio. Welcome to seven zero two. Good morning. Good morning. It's an absolute pleasure to be
1: with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: Thank you um, for for coming through. Have you forgiven us yet? Uh, Because there was a time when we beat England 16-15 at the World Cup and we (laughs) made it to the finals. Have you forgiven us for that yet?
1: (laughs) No. (laughs) You never will. (laughs) Uh, I remember that day so clearly because um, if you remember, it wasn't only in the rugby that we were playing each other. We were also playing each other in the cricket Cricket. World Cup Yes. where we got absolutely spanked. I think possibly our heaviest ever defeat. (laughs) So I went into the evening thinking, okay, that's not a great, uh, you know, not a great start to the day. Yeah. But it was a wonderful occasion. We hosted about 100 people at the residence in Cape Town for the event. I think I was probably one of about five people not wearing a spring box jersey. <laughs> Although when the final whistle went yeah. uh, and you we had just narrowly beaten us, almost with the last kick of the game, yeah. I whipped off my England top to reveal a spring box t-shirt <laughs> underneath. I think that is the essence of diplomacy. <laughs>
0: I love that. I, I really do. How long have you, uh,
1: how has it been going? How long have you been here now? I've been here for just over two and a half years. Two and a half and years. Um, it's been a busy uh, period. Mm-hmm. It's uh, We've had some real highlights, and I think probably still top of the pile for me is President Ramaphosa's state visit to London in uh, November 22. It's always a great privilege as a head of mission to be involved in arranging a state visit from the head of state of your country, the country you're posted in back to London, where we really put the relationship Mm-hmm. Up on a pedestal, and we use it to tell a fantastic story about the strength of the relationship, but also what we want to do with it going forward. So that was, say, November 22. But yeah. It's, uh, no, I'm thoroughly enjoying my time here. Incredible. So we, we come from far with the UK, and,
0: and, and we'll look at just where things come from and where we are, um, right now. Cause I want us to just reflect on our diplomatic, um, relations. And when I say we come far, I'm looking at our own history here. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, the British rule was over 100 years or so, um, if I'm not mistaken, during colonialism. So from that relationship that was founded in colonialism and conflict Mm -hmm. and dispossession and degradation, we have now built relations that are bound closely together by investments and and trade relationship um, with this former uh, colonial power, so to speak. Where are we right now in terms of our relations when you look at investments
1: and you look at trade? So I think the way you frame the question is really important because we can't change history. We can't change what has happened in the past. But I think it is really, really important that we acknowledge what has happened in the past. And just one little example, when we bring people into uh, the UK and South Africa network, we give them all a full one day of induction. And as part of that induction, we talk about the history of the UK's engagement with South Africa over the past, actually, back to the you know, early 1800s. And we talk about what that means for the modern day relationship in terms of the, politi- the political relationship and the economic relationship. Um, I mentioned the state visit. Uh, when His Majesty King Charles uh, gave his speech at the state banquet uh, honoring President Ramaphosa, he, um, he used a phrase that essentially is, we need to understand the consequences of our shared history if we're going to unlock the potential of our common future. And that, I think, is a really important framing for how we talk about our modern-day partnership. Um, we are the, uh, the single biggest international investor in South Africa. British companies have about 500 billion rand invested here. South Africa is our biggest trading partner in Africa. Uh, the trade relationship is, again, worth about 250 billion rand. Whenever I talk about that, I'm very conscious that you know some of those, uh, the roots that we have here in the economy, are indeed, as you say, a function of colonial times. Um, our mining companies have been here for a long time, but they are now engaged in a modern-day engagement uh, with South Africa, focused on creating jobs, creating future investment, being part of South Africa's uh, just energy transition in terms of the um, the mining, and then especially the value-added bits of supply chains uh, around things like critical minerals. So I think that sense of always being conscious where we've come from, always been very uh, cognizant and I think respectful of what has happened in the past but then using that as uh, as a way of then looking forward and thinking okay what are the challenges we're addressing now whether it's inclusive economic growth whether it's gender based violence in communities uh, whether it's climate change global health issues and then final thought on this is I think it's really important to think about not only what we are doing together bilaterally but what we are also doing together uh, regionally and really importantly, what we're going to do together globally. Next year, I think, uh, you heard me, I think, talk about this a little bit at the event we did in Cape Town a few weeks ago. A hugely significant moment when South Africa hosts the G20. It'll be the first time that the G20 has mm-hmm. been hosted by, chaired by Africa. Mm-hmm. And I just think that is a really important moment for us to sort of bring together all of these ambitions about the issues we want to address together in the world uh, and really think hard about what are we going to do to really make an impact uh, mm-hmm. on the ground. So, you know, It's in that context that I think about what I and my teams are trying to do here Mm. in terms of that modern-day partnership between the UK and South Africa.
0: 500 billion rand is a lot of investment um, in in a country like ours, especially when you have the kind of challenges that we have around the energy and unreliability, the logistics crisis. And I wonder, as High Commissioner, those businesses that are invested here in, in South Africa, how big a concern are these challenges for them? And how do you help even the South African government fix the challenges? Because you, you you can't think they're on their own because mm. the, the longer the challenges persist, that impacts on the businesses, uh, UK businesses that are invested here in South Africa.
1: So I think UK businesses, the, you know, they are uh, experiencing the same challenges that South African businesses are. And they're also part of some of the discussions that the business community uh, is having with the government around addressing challenges around whether it's energy, mm-hmm transport and logistics, crime and corruption, you know, those are the big three themes that the business community is working through with the government. British companies are around that table. Mm. Um, I think in terms of how they and indeed we as the British government can help, uh, big focus of course at the minute on the just energy transition. Uh, The UK is uh, in partnership with France, Germany, now Denmark and the Netherlands have also joined, Uh, the EU and the US have been there from the beginning with South Africa to help South Africa uh, Realise its own ambitions for a just energy transition, and you know, that is a multifaceted, multi-layered uh, series of policy priorities that are not only about creating new energy generation through uh, renewables. It's also about strengthening the grid. It's also about electric vehicles, green hydrogen, and very importantly, it is about job creation in the coal communities uh, to make sure that it is a just transition, and in the words that we all use, that no one is left behind. So you know, I think we are—we're uh, taking part in that discussion as a government. We are bringing uh, our uh, companies and organisations like uh, BII, British International Investment, uh, who are already big investors here in South Africa in the re- renewable space. We are uh, bringing in other private sector players, and we are you know trying to help this whole process uh, move forward. I think there's also potential for us to do the same in the transport and logistics sector. You know, we can bring. Uh, expertise and best practice into uh, the the rail sector, the port sectors, Um, and above all, I think we also want to keep working in partnership with South Africa to address some of the other challenges that businesses face, Uh, and that the government is very open about its own commitment to tackling corruption, tackling uh, crime and, and issues like that. We will We will want to be there as a partner across all of these themes. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the just energy
0: uh, transition, there's about 150 billion rand that has been committed by countries like yours, as the UK, France, Germany, um, and the US as well. Um, This is a new um, long-term, 8.5 billion US dollars, Mm -hmm. just energy transition partnership to support our decarbonisation efforts but there are other people who feel that the UK has somehow watered down their energy transition plans. Um, I remember reading about a UK approved opening um, its first deep coal mine in in more than 30 years and and I suppose that was risking this backlash from other activists who were portraying that project as a backward step in meeting the ambitious climate goals. Do you think the UK is sort of taking a step back a little bit and Yes, you are saying to South Africa, here's some money you can decarbonize when in fact
1: um, in the UK you're still, you know, opening coal mines. So I think there's two um, key uh, issues here for me. One is um, in terms of what uh, the UK is doing, uh, we are still on a path towards net zero. Um, you are right. that. You know, People have pointed to certain decisions we've made and said that is a backward step. Um, we have also been pushed into some other decisions, including you know, as a result of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, that created a real gas crunch for a lot of countries mm. uh, in Europe. And again, the allegation has been made that you know, our, we and others are sort of taking steps back. But actually, if you look at um, our projected uh, emissions over the next uh, 5, 10, 15 years, um, we will actually end up decarbonizing quicker as a result of some of those short-term decisions that we have made. And then in the context of South Africa, I think you know, um, it's always been really important for me that this is not about us telling South Africa what to do. Mm. This is about us listening to South Africa saying that they want to uh, deliver their own just energy transition. They have what this is called a nationally determined contribution that they published just ahead of... Uh, the COP Summit in Glasgow in November 21, where we launched the Just Energy Transition Partnership. Mm-hmm. And within there, there are some very ambitious targets for emissions reductions. And what we, as the, the international partners group, so the other countries plus the UK involved in this, uh, said is, that's your ambition. We approve, we applaud that ambition, and we want to be a partner to help you deliver it. Mm. How South Africa does it is very much uh, needs to be country-led, uh, and you know, a huge amount of work has gone into... Uh, Some of the coordination through things like the project management unit uh, based in the presidency, uh, who I think actually did quite an extensive briefing on this themselves yesterday. Um, But the key thing is that it's not going to happen overnight. What we are looking to see and what the South African government is putting out there, whether in the context of its investment plan that it published just over a year ago uh, or its implementation plan that it published uh, around the last COP summit in the UAE, is setting out, you know, a path towards decarbonisation and a path, most importantly, towards uh, economic growth, economic opportunity through green technologies and the green sectors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, how do you
0: then, as High Commissioner, manage uh, differences in the approach to issues by the respective governments, being the UK um, and South Africa? For instance, you, you, on the war in Ukraine, we... we have different approaches on that. What is your responsibility as a high commissioner in a country where your home country takes this particular position, but this country whose sovereignty must also be respected takes
1: a different position? How do you manage that? I think it's the essence of diplomacy. (laughs) The reason I think we have uh, diplomatic networks is to ensure that we are having the right conversations between the right people, uh, between my country and in this context, of course, um, South Africa. Um, I would actually say that on Ukraine, for example, I don't think our positions are that radically different. Mm -hmm. We both believe in the uh, principles set out in the UN Charter of territorial integrity, sovereignty, independence, the right to choose your own your own future. the South African government, I was at a, 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 a press club event that, uh, in Cape Town that the president did uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he was very open that they believe that Ukraine has a right to you know, its own sovereign future. Uh, South Africa is taking part in uh, talks amongst a group of countries uh, in pursuit of the Ukraine uh, peace formula, which are base, is based around the 10 points that have been set up by President Zelensky. And South Africa, of course, led the African peace initiative that visited both Kyiv and Moscow uh, around about think, maybe 18 months ago now. So I think you know, South Africa's position um, is not fundamentally different to ours, uh, but I think the important thing is that we are having the right discussions about how we approach these issues together. And actually just earlier this week, uh, my Foreign Secretary, Lord Cameron, and uh, Foreign Minister Pandor met in the margins of the G20 Foreign Minister's meeting. And again, that's you know, an important opportunity for them to discuss these issues mm-hmm. and make sure that we actually understand each other's positions and we can work together to try and move the issues forward towards what I think are actually broadly aligned shared ambitions in terms of where we want this to end up, which is peace in Ukraine. Yeah.
0: Uh, I remember when there was another event um, at, at, at in Pretoria, uh, what do you call the home? Do you say it's... We rather grandly
1: refer to it as residence. It's my the residence.
0: residence. So it's your residence. <laughs> <laughs> there was an event. I remember you, you said something that I actually came on the show and I spoke about because it was just interesting to see, I think too lessingly, to the Minister of Public Works mm. gave a message on behalf of our government at that event and, and you were just reflecting on the war in the Middle East and, and you said as a High Commissioner um, that... It was very clear, you are clear as the UK for your support of of Israel's right to defend itself. Um, But then you went further and said, we are also concerned about um, the fatalities that that we are seeing in Gaza. Uh, As it stands now, because a lot of countries now are sort of trying to also, suppose, lobby each other, especially when you're dealing with the National Security Council, where you're so dependent on the votes. um, And some countries can veto some of the resolutions What has been the position of the UK as things stand now about the war in the Middle East and the two-state
1: solution? So um, I remember that event. So that was the King's Birthday Party uh, in November last year. And as you say, uh, the South African minister was there representing the South African government. And I listened very carefully to his comments uh, Mm -hmm. that evening as well. Um, So as of this moment, uh, the Foreign Secretary is engaged in, you know, really intensive diplomacy, uh, not just with his South African counterpart but doing a huge amount of travelling, we are very clear that this needs, this issue can only be resolved through a meaningful, sustainable peace based on a two-state solution that provides security and peace for both Israel and Palestine. We are clear that that is not going to happen while Hamas is in authority because they they have no interest in a two-state solution. What happened on the 7th of October was an atrocity, the single biggest loss of life uh, for uh, the Jewish people of the world since the Holocaust. Since then, yes, we have been concerned that as Israel exercises its right of self-defense, which we fully believe in, it must do so in line with international humanitarian law. Um, I actually believe, and indeed I think the Foreign Secretary has said that the interim measures that were uh, ordered by the ICJ after South Africa took its case uh, to them a few, well, the measures that were ordered a, a, a few months ago, they are entirely in line with those principles. Israel mm-hmm. must act in line with international humanitarian law. There must be greater access uh, for humanitarian aid uh, into Gaza. And that again is something that we are very focused on uh, ensuring uh, we see happen. We are uh, calling for an immediate pause uh, to hostilities in order to allow uh, that uh, humanitarian aid mm-hmm. and that would then be you know a, 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 a milestone on the way or a stepping stone on the way to that sustainable uh, ceasefire so that is our position and again I don't actually think that is radically different to the position of, of the South African government again at the press club event I mentioned um, President Ramposa was very clear that South Africa wants to te- wants to see a two-state solution It wants to see uh, humanitarian law uh, respected and abided by, and it wants to see a a pause or a ceasefire, they would call it, uh, in order to allow those things to happen. And ultimately, they too want to see this resolved through a two-state solution. Mm
0: -hmm. Except Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't want a two-state solution. Um, I think um, even some David Cameron, the Foreign Secretary, even the US President Joe Biden have sort of, Indirectly raise some frustrations Because the, their government's positions are clear They support a two-state solution But that's not what Benjamin Netanyahu supports And I imagine that sort of muddies the waters And sort of frustrates the process Because as countries who support Israel's right to defend, it, to defend itself um, When you are saying to Israel The sustainable solution here is a two-state solution And the government of Israel says Well, that's not what we think that puts you in a tricky position um, as,
1: as governments that have always been allies of of the State of Israel. I think we need to keep focusing on what we believe the the right outcome is and we will keep asserting our position and partnership with our allies um, in order to try and uh, move towards that. and we will engage in that intensive diplomacy with the Israeli government as well as with um, as well as with others.
0: 011-883-0702. that's the number you can call you can send us your WhatsApps. On o seven two we're in conversation this morning with Anthony Philipson, who is the British High Commissioner to South Africa. As I said to you in the coming weeks, I'll be bringing in a number of High Commissioners, some ambassadors as well, so we get to understand fully what their responsibilities are uh, when they're here in in, in South Africa. I, I want to ask you, because you mentioned transport and logistics, Uh, infrastructure and how you can support and how you've been supporting South Africa in also just dealing with some of the crisis in in, in those departments in those industries. What do you think we can learn from the UK about let's say public transport infrastructure?
1: It's actually a conversation we have quite a lot uh, with departments here um, including the Department of Public Works and also you know those who are engaged in these discussions at Transnet and and elsewhere. you know, all countries are different in terms of, you know, the the particular context. But I think we can share experience both from the UK public sector and private sector into how we have thought through, you know, integrated transport systems or transport systems in in a city like London, you know, how you can have a, a tube system, we call it the underground, operating, you know, alongside a bus network and also along things like uh, cycle networks and making mm-hmm. sure that our cities are livable as well as um, travelable,
2: mm-hmm. Not a
1: real word. Um, so I think we need the key thing is to have, is, is to have the discussion and to you know ask South African colleagues what is it that it would be most useful for you to hear about from us and then, of course, alongside that, we can bring in our companies uh, who have expertise of uh, delivering this on the ground. and you just again name a couple. there's a company called Turner and Townsend that are doing a lot of work with the city of Cape Town around its future transport plans mm. uh, for the city. Um, So, you know, I think it's about opening up the conversation, identifying what the shared challenges are, sharing best practice. And, of course, I think also the other opportunity of uh, being able to have a conversation about these things is we can be very open and talk about things that haven't worked so successfully Mm -hmm. to make sure that South Africa, you know, is maximizing its use of resources and is able to move forward as quickly as possible on its own priorities.
0: Yeah, and I'm interested to know, after the news, what do you think you've picked up in South Africa that you think the UK um, can learn from. Uh, it's ten thirty. Seven oh two. The Clement Mania Taylor Show. Let's walk the talk. It's twenty five minutes before eleven o'clock. We're in conversation with British High Commissioner to South Africa, Antony Philipson. Uh, I'll go to your WhatsApps. I'll go to um, your calls as well. Uh, in a moment, I wanted to ask High Commissioner about something that we are about to embark on here in South Africa. Uh, that's the national health insurance. You may have followed the debate um, in Parliament, we're waiting for the President to sign that off and I know in the past the UK experts have also been advising government on implementing the universal health um, coverage. What should we be aware of before we embark on such a mission, given your own experience with the NHS?
1: So, um, as you say, we have been watching the debate very carefully. Um, we have been working uh, with South African counterparts, both at government and private sector, um, for a long time now on uh, their ambitions to strengthen health care uh, and indeed to deliver universal health care uh, within South Africa. Um, we have brought, as you say, experts into this discussion, whether it's you know people from the Royal College of GPs or the Royal College of Nurses or even from the NHS itself, just to really talk through the challenges. Uh, again, I think this is another area where... I'd just think that the context is not directly uh, replicable. Um, but uh, we are certainly you know, in, in intensive discussions about what, this, what we have done in the past, again, as I said earlier, what has worked, what hasn't worked. Uh, what that is going to look like on the ground in South Africa will obviously be unique to the context of South Africa and will be uh, a, a matter of decision for the South African government. Um, but you know, we will continue. I mean, I think our, our work on um, health partnerships with South Africa is one of the most important sort of themes that we that we focus on. Uh, we signed an MOU on uh, health matters uh during the president's state visit uh in November 22 and then I had a very uh, uh enjoyable and substantive discussion with the health minister here a few months ago to talk about how we take that forward uh on the ground. And again, this is another area where our private sector whether it's AstraZeneca or GE Healthcare uh, are deeply engaged and deeply invested. Um, both in terms of resources and also time and contribution to the discussion here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's a message from Jules
0: on the WhatsApp line who's who's asking. Good morning. Uh, I want to ask about uh, the UK, uh, the, the the UK High Commissioner there about the issue of visas. How difficult it is to uh, get a visa? A visa. Um, I have travelled to personally to the UK. Um, uh, a number of times but I got declined on my last visa application uh, please my request is for the process of holiday visas to be reassessed have you had any complaints about visas particularly for, for holidays? So holiday visa, visa? <laughs> there is
1: a lot of discussion about visas yeah. and um, you know, I'm very conscious that uh, there are people who remember uh, the period prior to about 2008 where we didn't require visas uh, either for holiday or business travel mm-hmm. um, you know, we've have always been very clear about why we put those in place in terms of a concern around uh, that people were abusing the right to get into the UK from South Africa without a visa. Um, in terms of the visa process we have now, um, you know, there have been times in my two and a half years here where uh, the visa system has, bec- has been under real pressure, not least uh, in the context of the, the travel restrictions around COVID. COVID. When those were eased, mm. we suddenly had this enormous, uh, you know, backlog of, of applications. But as we sit here today, um, I think I would argue, I would certainly argue that our visa system is is very accessible. Uh, it is very clear in terms of the process that people need to go through. Uh, decisions are being made uh, well within our published service standards, which mm. for a, a holiday visa is uh, is fifteen working days. Uh, people need to get them quicker. There are also uh, options to choose accelerated uh, processing. Um, and uh, in terms of this uh, this particular example, if Uh, I can only sort of surmise that if there's a reason why it's been declined, maybe it's because uh, some piece of information uh, was missing, Uh, you know, I don't want to, I can't comment on the specific. Um, But I think generally uh, the visa system is pretty transparent, it operates very smoothly, not least as the result of a huge amount of work that goes on by the visa team who uh, sit with us in Pretoria uh, working through uh, these applications. I mean, the people-to-people links, if I can just add this point, between our countries, I think, are just hugely important. You know, 300,000 UK visitors to South Africa every year, 200,000 British nationals resident here, and similar numbers going from here to the UK, both for holiday, for business. Um, and we want to make sure that those uh, those movements can happen um, smoothly. So we do continue to, you know, look at our visa system and see where we can improve it. There are some... Uh, you know uh, changes coming down the pipe in terms of sort of new technology that we can mm. deploy that will make it even easier to get a visa, um, and we do also continue to have a dialogue with the South African government around some of the issues uh, that required us to put the visa regime in place in the first place
0: yeah, someone says uh, Clement, I just feel like it 's a little expensive as well um, it 's sometimes off putting when you want to visit the country in terms of the expenses
1: um,
0: what's what 's your assessment there
1: we I mean, yes, I know that some people, again, I've had this uh, this case put to me that uh, visas, if we're going to have them, could be cheaper. But, mm. you know, we broadly run the visa system uh, using the resource that it generates. So, um, uh, but I recognize, and of course, you know, occasionally I will say to people, well, if you're a frequent traveler, maybe you should think about getting a 10-year visa. And I know that some people t- will then turn around to me and say, but it's too expensive, I can't afford it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I want to
0: take Mark Kubela now, who's calling us from Johannesburg. I'm going to ask you, High Commissioner, to please uh, put on your headphones. Mark Kubela, good morning. Good morning, Chairman. How are you today? I'm all right, man. Go ahead. What's your question?
2: Good, good. High Commissioner, good to have you on radio. My uh, two questions, one is regarding the 500 billion rands that you've mentioned that is invested by the UK entities in South Africa, We work with the graduates all across the African continent and would want to send them to the UK to get work experience. Do you think your commission can be able to facilitate that for us? I think that's something we'd like to do in line of the already made investment so that there's that international exposure for our graduates that are new graduates who just graduated. The second thing is why do we need a transit visa to go through the UK via the airport to other countries.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much for, for those two questions. So so the first one is about whether you think it's viable for, for, for graduates to study and work in the UK. And Mike Kubela works for an organization that helps um, connect young people after matric to universities and some bursaries. And, and when, when they have
1: graduated, they help them get jobs. Are there opportunities for them in the UK? I think there certainly is. And, uh, you know, it's a good prompt to um, one thing I was keen to sort of mention on this uh, in our discussion is that we run a a scholarship program called the Chevening Scholarship Program. We also run, uh, through the British Council, Commonwealth scholarships. Um, But Chevening is is sort of our biggest platform for this. And um, we now send about 50 um, uh, graduate students uh, to the UK every year. Uh, to study for fully paid one-year master's programs at any university across the United Kingdom. It's for them to choose and uh, if, they can, if they can get a place, and then they apply through our scholarship program. And so I think that, that number, that 50, is significant. Um, it means that in the 40 years, actually in the 40 years that Chevening has been operating, I think we now have about 900 uh, alumni uh, here in South Africa. Um, I'm always very uh, open and keen to think of other ways that we can you know, give graduates the opportunity uh, to go to the UK. Um, and you know, again, we talk to uh, business groups about how, you know, what they are thinking about in terms of some of the graduates that are coming onto their programs and what that means for, uh, you know, them getting work experience uh, in the UK, uh, which is just one of the many reasons why I think it's so important for us to have a really intensive discussion between the UK and South African business communities. Uh, so that we can try and create more of these opportunities. Okay. The second question was about a transit
0: visa. Um, Do you need a transit visa if you're not even getting out of the airport? Because this was a confusion I had as well in December because I traveled to the U.S. in December and I was constantly told by people that you actually need a transit visa. And I was like, I'm literally in London for just two hours Um, until I had to clarify later on, called someone, um, at the, at the, at the commission, and I was told, no, you actually don't. Well, what is the clarity there? Do
1: you or do you not need one? So, um, we do require people to, uh, have a transit visa, even if they're not leaving the airport, mm-hmm. just because of you know, the, 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 assessed risk of the, uh, the, the border, uh, to the border, uh, as a result, even of those, um, even of those transits. However, um, the, Uh, situation you found yourself in is that there are some countries where if you have a visa to go to that country, then we do not require Mm. um, a transit visa going Mm -hmm. through London. And the U.S. is one of them. Mm. And that's because of a specific agreement that we will have reached with the U.S. and a specific assurance that we have taken from the U.S. visa processing system. So it would have been different if I was flying to another country? Yes. Um, yeah. If you don't have that long-standing yeah. agreement. There's a limited number of countries for whom uh-huh. if you have their visa and you're transiting through the UK, then you won't need a transit visa from us. Oh, okay. Got it. Um, I want to pick up on, on the issue Makubela raises about
0: graduates and, and talk about the issue of immigration. Because South Africa and England are attractive to citizens of other countries because of um, opportunities that they present. Um How do you manage this issue of of, of immigration as the UK? Because there's the consequence of inward migration in the crisis of managing the tension between those citizens um, and and immigration. What is the solution of the UK? Because I think previously you had announced a decision to initiate that Rwanda solution, which you could argue has its own challenges when it comes to human rights implications. What have you learned from that? Because you've been sending what? Asylum seekers? In the UK to Rwanda, and then they must make a decision on whether or not they accept them as asylum seekers, and then you
1: give them some money as well. How has how has that arrangement been working? So I think it's important to distinguish between um, two, ty- well, broadly two types of immigration. There's there's legal uh, immigration, you know, controlled immigration that uh, is you know, is a is a function of our economies, and I think that's true for South Africa as well. Um, there's the more challenging issue of illegal migration, uh, people who do not have the right uh, to enter the UK. Um, and in the past few years, we have seen this, you know, the rise of people crossing the Channel, the so-called small boats. Um, and it is that issue that the government is working very, very hard to address, both in terms of uh, detailed engagement and cooperation with colleagues in France to try and uh, stop the crossings, uh, but also when people do get into the UK, uh you know, ensuring that uh, their uh, their asylum status is, is properly and fairly assessed. Um, the government has announced or has reached an agreement uh, with Rwanda uh, that would see us transferring uh, people in this situation to Rwanda for their asylum claim to be assessed in and by Rwanda, not in order for them to come to the UK if it's granted, they would stay in Rwanda if it was granted. Um, that is something that the government uh, is still uh, very committed to. Uh, There is a piece of legislation going through our House of Parliament uh, now in order to address uh, some of the concerns that have been raised uh, by our courts. Um, But the government sees that as a really important part of the the overall approach, uh, which also includes ensuring that we have the right, uh, what we call, returns agreements with countries. So if people are coming from particular countries and then their asylum claim is assessed and it's not granted, then we need to be able to return them to the countries where they they came from. Um, so it's it's a complicated issue, um, but it is you know seen by the UK as a hugely important issue in terms of us being able to decide who is in the UK and, and who is not, and you know an essential part of border control. Which, again, I think you know look at some of the uh, reforms that have been done here in South Africa, including the new border management agency and some of the debates here around uh, immigration. Uh, I think you know they are they're, they're difficult and complicated issues here as well.
0: So, it doesn't,
1: so, so basically, it doesn't
0: matter which country you've come from when you're entering the, the the UK illegally. Then you can go to 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 Rwanda. Then they must decide on 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 your application for for asylum. That will, th- will be part of it. Yes, that will be part of it. Does that not complicate things though for 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 Rwanda? Yes, they've got an incentive in that the UK is paying them some money. But immigration is a global phenomenon. They're already dealing with their own um, illegal immigration. Does it not complicate things, especially given how small resourced, so to speak, that country is?
1: Well, I mean, that's why we have entered the partnership with them um, and are supporting them in creating the capacity uh, to be a partner uh, in this um, in this objective. I've got a message
0: here um, from Kugu on the WhatsApp line who says, Clement, I'm one of the the Shenin Scholarship recipients. I'm forever grateful to the UK government for that opportunity. This is a great way that graduates uh, can get exposure in the UK. That's a message from Google. Let's take Irene, who's calling from the UK, um, Irene. So you are South African, but you, you live in the UK.
2: Yes. Hi. Hi, Clement. Hi. Um, and hi. Um, Anthony, is it Anthony with an H or without an H? So no, no H. No H. <laughs> no H. Okay, yes. Hi. Welcome to my country. I'm in Thank your you. country at the moment. <laughs> uh you. You are representing us very well, my brother. I've been listening. Very good conversation. Um, you mentioned something about, um, you know, with the transportation in the UK, the underground system, how they can implement it in South Africa. I think uh, with my experience, there underground system in in, in the UK, it works better because these tunnels, remember, they were there during the war or, you know, they were created because of the war. And it was very easy for the UK system to just, you know, get them into being um, a transport system without having to pay quite a lot of money. But Mm. in South Africa, what we have at the moment will work even much better. It's the normal train that we have. In South Africa, uh, in the UK, we've got the TransLink and we've got the uh, the Gatwick um, Express, which in South Africa works like the um, what they call uh, the one that takes you to the airport. The I uh, Just forgot. Yeah, the How train. Uh it, it it's, it's the same way. Mm. However, with our transport system, if we keep the transportation system, you know, going by looking after it very well, it works fantastic. Um, the way we have. Had it for um, in in the past when I was young, my parents used to use uh, the trains all the time. They're quite cheap and they were you know um, looked after very well. So I think what we have, we need to just continue with the uh, structure and um, you know make mm-hmm. it work uh, for the South Africans because the underground is a different system in the UK. And with the underground in the UK, I recently travelled to Paris. I can simply say. Uh, the UK transportation system, the underground, works better. It's very clear you understand. I was in Paris, and at some point, I was not even finding where the station is. You know, it was a bit difficult. Mm. So, in the UK, the system works better, and um, I've been enjoying. Once you get to know it, you know, it's oh. it's, it's like. Green line, red line, yellow line, it's, it's, it's marvellous. That's
0: amazing. I'll, now
2: I'll, I just, yeah, it's amazing. I just yeah. want to also touch up with, the, you mentioned something about um, the visa. There was a caller who was asking about why are we, you know, having to um, wait for so long or having visas, our visas being declined. I think on that part, South Africans uh, coming to the UK, they have difficulties in Getting visas, there's a lot of requirements, which mm-hmm. for me personally, as a South African, I just think is just too much. Mm-hmm. Because I have a British passport, um, having to travel—if I will travel with my daughter, British citizens are allowed to stay in our country, South Africa, for 30 days, if not 60, without a visa. You know, and nothing is questioned at the immigration. Mm-hmm. So we are giving England what they are not giving us. Mm -hmm. so that needs to be looked into because it can't be one way versus the other way Mm -hmm. you know and we've got people who are genuine people who want to come and visit england i mean even a small visit they make it so hard you need to prove you know even your last chance in the bank which i understand they need to try to protect the uk but we are giving them Mm -hmm. way far you know, and we're not getting... More
0: than what we're back. getting, got it. Irene, Irene, thank you so much for, for calling us
1: uh, a South African who's living there in the UK, uh, Commissioner. Well, I hope it's not too cold for you. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, your point on the underground, I mean, uh, to be clear, I wasn't suggesting necessarily that South Africa should create an underground network or even Johannesburg should. Um, I was just, I think the point I was trying to make is that we have, you know, you need to think about integrated transport systems and in the context of London that includes the tube, the buses, etc. cetera. Um, and uh I, I think every country will have its own solution to its own sort of transport challenges uh, on visas you know i, I hear you um I, as i say our commitment is to make sure that our system uh, works as efficiently and and fairly as possible that is what we spend a lot of time focusing on um i do recognize that uh uk visitors to south africa uh don't need a visa um and you know that is uh, something that i think drives a lot of the inward uh, visits mm. um uh I actually, myself, I do need a visa as a diplomat. So in that one, we're the other way around. Um, So, you know, these are complicated issues. I think they're important issues that we keep talking about with the South African government in terms of why we feel that a visa regime is required, and then we focus on addressing those issues. Hi, Clement. Uh, Thanks
0: for a great show and to listeners as well. Uh, Anthony as High Commissioner. Do you think there is a risk of South Africa being a failed state in the medium to long term? And what are some of the benchmarks or red flags that you would warn against? And and what are your thoughts about coalition politics in South Africa? Uh, we can see in Israel, at least, it has brought about one of the most right-wing governments in history. Do we see similar risks in South Africa? Thanks very much for a great
1: show. This is Matthew from Pretoria. Thank you very much. Um, so... Um... I'm trying to work out if it's the Matthew that I know in Pretoria. Um, <laughs> maybe you, can mean, come do you know in Pretoria. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um in terms of the challenges that South Africa is facing over the next, you know, the next few years, um my view actually is that South Africa has a very clear view. The South African government has a very clear view about the challenges that it is facing, uh and it has uh, very clear strategies uh to address them that would uh create, you know, more economic growth would address some of the issues that the President both set out in his State of the Nation address, and indeed the Finance Minister then set out in his budget uh, last week in terms of you know, driving up the growth rate, creating more opportunity for people, in addressing issues around uh, crime uh, in the community, around corruption, etc. As I say, they're very, very clear about the need to address these and very clear about how they think. They need to be addressed. I'm also, I think I'm encouraged by what I touched on earlier, which is the discussions going on between the business community and the government uh, to ensure that all parts of South African society, uh, to which actually I would add uh, civil society organizations, I would also add the media, in terms of having a joined-up, focused discussion about how all of these groups are going to work together, including, again, I'd add ourselves as the diplomatic community and South Africa's friends and partners, to address these issues and reduce the risk of things continuing to yeah. seem as if they're not going in the direction the government wants, and then coalition politics. Um, I, uh, you know, I think one good rule of a diplomat is uh, that you know internal political matters for the country that you're posted in are very much a matter for the government of the country that you're posted in. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, we of course are watching with very great interest uh, the run up to what will be, you know, I think really significant elections. You know, historic year of the thirty. Uh, 30th anniversary of the dawn of democracy in uh, April '94. Um, we are, of course, reading all the same news reports that everyone else is reading about uh, the, uh, the the likelihood of um, the um, of, of the next government being a coalition at national level. Um, actually, we have, uh, and, and I know a number of other countries in Europe as well have uh, been engaged in quite sort of detailed conversations, uh, including with the South African government, uh, about how coalitions have worked in our own countries. Um, I actually think the U.K., we have less experience of this than, say, some of our continental European colleagues, uh, where coalitions are, you know, very much the norm um, and don't actually necessarily mean that you see a drift uh, to the right uh, in terms of the formation of those governments. The U.K., we have uh, more limited uh, experience of that. Uh, we've tended to have um, single parties in government, uh, with the exception of a coalition government between 2010 and 2015. But, again, you know, we will always be there if our South African colleagues want to talk to us about this, mm. um, and we will watch with interest what happens on the twenty ninth of may yeah
0: just just quickly on on the g20 we, we touched a bit on this earlier. Uh, we are going to be at the epicenter of global politics as the leader of the g20 next year. How do you think South Africa can capitalize on that
1: I think there are an, well. Three quick thoughts, because I know we're running up against your hour. Um, First of all, I think just the sense of South Africa being the centre of attention uh, is going to be, I think, a very positive moment for the country. Um, And uh, they are starting, I know they're starting to think about their agenda uh, for the G20. Uh, Again, we as a member of the G20 are are, talking to them about that as well. The President has said a few things, you know, putting... Uh, development in Africa right at the heart of the agenda. That is something certainly we would uh, 100% support. We were very pleased to see the African Union joining the G20 as a full member uh, at the last summit in India. Um, And then I think the world is going to come to South Africa, um, and I think uh, South Africa is going to make them very, very welcome, as well as addressing the key issues in the global economy that the G20 will focus on. Mm. Anthony Philipson, British High Commissioner to South Africa.
0: Thank you so much for making time for us.
1: Just before I go, yeah.
0: very good luck in the marathon in London in yes. April. Yes, I'm running at the London <laughs> Marathon in April. Thank you yeah. so much for, for the best wishes. All the best. It's a